It's Daily Thunder, thundering out the truth of Jesus Christ live every morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more about our discipleship programs or to support this podcast, visit ellerslie.com. Now, here's Eric Lee. Welcome to the Wednesday edition of Daily Thunder. We're going through a five-part uh, series right now on uh, really the five things that make up the essence of our faith and our practice as Christians. Uh, we're calling them the Five Fabulous Fingers, which is more of a humorous-sounding title, but it's actually a very serious uh, message. We've, if we liken it to a hand, uh, these five fingers uh, represent the Word of God uh, in five different forms and expressions. The Word of God in text is the foundation of our faith. It's the revelation of God in and through the Scriptures. And that reveals the Word of God in person. And so that we see Jesus and we know Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah because he fulfills all that Scripture. But the Scriptures don't just tell of a man who will come. It also describes what this man will do. And that's the Word of God in action. And those three together combined actually make up the basis of what we believe as Christians. We believe what the text says about that man and what that man did is the essence of our salvation. And so when we place our faith in those first three, it actually leads to a breakthrough in our soul, a change, a regeneration, which leads to an alteration of our life and we become vessels that are now fit to be filled with the life of God. And that's the word of God in us, which is the infilling of the Holy Spirit. And that's the functionality of Christianity. Without that, you don't have anything, which leads to the fifth finger, which I would call the word of God through us. And that is how we live as believers. We live believing in the text of scripture, believing in the man that it reveals, Jesus, and believing that what he did is sufficient and efficacious for us, and then being filled with his very life so that we could now go and do what he would do if he were in this body, because he is. He lives inside of us, Christ in us, the hope of glory. And so today we're on the third finger, if you will, the third expression of the word of God, and it's the word of God in action. So on Monday we went through the word of God in text. Uh, Yesterday we went through the word of God uh, in person and talked about Jesus, which was very exciting, by the way. And then today uh, we're going to be covering the cross, really. Uh, now, the cross is a summation of a lot. So when, when Paul says to the church at Corinth, I determined to know nothing among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. Well, does that mean that Jesus did nothing else but be crucified? I mean, we know he was buried, resurrected, ascended, and he'll return again. I mean, there's more to it, isn't there? And there is. However, it all starts with that great work on the cross, So the cross symbolizes a beginning of works, if you will, of the labor of Christ. What he came to do was to die on that cross to set free, to break chains, to create a domino effect uh, throughout all of the rest of history. And so that's why we oftentimes will refer to it just as the cross, even though the cross is a beginning of action. So I'm going to go through quite a few scriptures today, and I will attempt to you know, give some pause and delay in there. I know I can move through notes uh, fairly quickly for those of you that try and write things down. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to show you an action, that what we see is that this man who will come is, there, the prophecies are going to declare that he's going to do something. He's not just going to show up. Because it's interesting to ponder, he could have taken on our form, he could have been born of a virgin in the town of Bethlehem, and he could have just sort of shown us a perfect life, 
and then made us feel really bad about the fact that our life isn't perfect. In other words, he could have demonstrated and said, you try and follow now, and it would have been another version of the law because that's all the law was. The law on, on tablets of stone was basically the same thing. It's like God has come with his own finger written out for us how we ought to live, and this is how you do it. He could have done the same in flesh, and he could have modeled perfection, but that wouldn't have made us any more able to follow than we were with the law. The reason the new covenant is greater is because it enables us by the power of his very life to now do it so that we don't just stare at the lofty requirements of law, but now we have the lofty power of God in us to live a life that otherwise we couldn't. And so the action of God is very critical. It's not just the text and it's not just the man, it's what that man is going to do that is going to set a new pattern and a new covenant. So he himself took our infirmities and bare our sicknesses. That's Matthew 8, 17. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. That's Isaiah 53, 4. In 1 Peter 2, 24, who his own self bare our sins in his own body on the tree, that we being dead to sins should live unto righteousness. So Jesus is coming. This man, as we've described, is going to come and he's going to do something. Now, most of us in here are very well acquainted with what he did. In other words, this isn't like a shocker that I'm saying this. It's like, wait a minute, wait a minute, Eric. You're, you're saying he bore our, our infirmities? He bore our sicknesses? He bore our trespasses? He bore our sin? I mean, are you serious? I mean, it's, we know it, right? But for whatever reason, sometimes we need to highlight. We need to bring out the highlighter pen and go over the same thing that we already know. Like John 3.16 is one of those things where we're just a yawn. We've heard this so many times, and yet it is truly a miracle statement for God so loved the world. I mean, that should shock us right there. Why does he love the world? That he gave his only begotten son. What, why would God do that? That whosoever would believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. I mean, this is, this is profound and yet we become so familiar that it inoculates us at a certain level to the awe and the grandeur. So Hebrews 2.18 for in that he himself has suffered, being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. So this Christ is going to come and he's going to accomplish something on our behalf. In other words, he is going to go through temptation and trials in order that he may help those who are facing trials and ordeals. Hebrews 4.14. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession, for we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted, like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly under the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So one of the things I want to focus on is the fact that what is taking place on the cross is the work of a high priest. He is on our behalf offering his own blood as an offering. This is what the priests did in Israel. And so we see this is Passover day uh, in history. I mean, there's a, it's a profound picture. And that's why in the Garden of Gethsemane, they call it the high priestly prayer, John 17. Because this is the working of the high priest who on our behalf is going to bring an offering. What's shocking is that the offering is his own blood. Okay, that's the, that's the game changer that shocks and bewilders all of us. It's not just that he is functioning as a high priest. It's that he's functioning as a high priest on our behalf with his own body as the lamb. 
with his own blood as the atoning sacrifice. I mean, that's just startling. And I mean, we all know it, but it's startling. So I'm going to emphasize the high priestly work of the cross. And you're going to see that as a result of this work, it says, let us therefore come boldly under the throne of grace. You see, it's a breakthrough. It is a change of covenant. There is an alteration. Before this, we have no business approaching this holy hill of, of Sinai. You know, it's, it's thunder and lightning, and we're not allowed there. Who can ascend the hill of the Lord, but he who has clean hands and a pure heart? We can't. We're, we, we don't have clean hands and a pure heart, but unless you do, you cannot ascend. And so now you basically see in the New Testament, ascend the hill of the Lord. But how would I do that, God? I need to have clean hands and a pure heart. You believe in the one who did have clean hands and a pure heart. And his clean hands and his pure heart become your clean hands and pure heart so that now you can ascend unto the hill of the Lord. So therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Grace has been opened up to us. Grace in the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf, that's the expression of what is taking place in that cross. It is the work of God on our behalf. The loving, gentle, gracious, kind, bewildering work of God on our behalf. And now he has opened up to us all grace so that we can now have the life of God working on our behalf. So the action of the cross. Now this is an incomplete, and I'm going to, Oh, I'm gonna, I almost need to overemphasize that, that this is incomplete. This is almost just a quick summation just to help you gather your wits about this dramatic work on the cross. It is humble in a way that is hard to grasp how humble this is that the king of the universe would become slow, so lowly, bless you, would become so lowly as to become a worm and no man. And this is the high king of heaven who becomes a worm and no man, who is stripped naked, scourged, and does not speak on his own defense, on his own behalf. His beard is ripped out, and spittle is upon his cheek. The highest levels of shame, but the highest levels of shame aren't just the ripped out beard and the spittle on the cheek and the crown of thorns upon his head, but to hang naked as a criminal, he is being shamed publicly to be hung on a cross in the Jewish culture. I'm not just talking about the Roman. In the Jewish culture would be to be accursed. And he is doing this publicly. And I mean, talk about a humble work, guys. I'm, I'm struggling for a better word than humble. It's loving. It's kind. It's selfless. You see, everything about God's nature is revealed at the cross. That's why it's a pinnacle of all history. What you're going to see is there has never been a clearer, more vivid representation and revelation of the word of God to us than the cross of Jesus Christ. The text of scripture is all fulfilled right there. The nature of God, the will of God, the purpose of God. Whoa, I mean, it's just like all right there. The center of all history right there. You see, but it's revealed in and through the man. So the text reveals this man. And this man is going to be God in the flesh. But look at what he does. And the word of God in text, the word of God in flesh, is going to reveal itself in and through an action. An action that is humble, loving, kind, selfless. But we can keep going. Perfect, righteous, holy, and just. 
You see, God is going to settle a score. He is going to redeem. He's going to pay a ransom. He is going to gain us back out of the grip of sin. He is going to break a covenantal bond with us in death. But guess what? He cannot violate his perfect law in doing it, which means he can't steal us. He can't commit adultery. We're in a marriage relationship with death. How is this supposed to be annulled? In and through death. And that's what Romans 7 is going to describe. He is not going to steal us. He is going to redeem us. And as a result, all of this is fulfilling perfect righteousness. He is holy, and guess what? This act is holy and without sin. Everything he is doing is in stride with his nature. It is heroic, brave, courageous, daring, or dare I say, manly. What he is doing is what the ultimate man would do in in such a circumstance. Here's his bride. What would a man do? He would do this, as God himself would do it. So if God were going to be in a man's body, what would he do? He would do this. This is the fulfillment of all righteousness. This is the fulfillment of the nature of God. This is the manifest representation of what God would do if he took on a human form. And he saw the dire need of a world that he loved. What would he do? He would do this. And what he also shows us is this is as a man ought to act. This is what we were created for. Now we can't do it. Adam has failed. Adam is warped and twisted. So God has to come to the earth and do it for us in an Adam body. But to set us free so that we can now follow and do what he would do. So that when We see a cross that we would be willing to pick it up and follow. That we are willing and able now to be humble, loving, kind, selfless. And to do work that reveals the kingdom of heaven that is heroic, brave, courageous, and daring. That we can now showcase the kingdom of heaven in and through our lives. Why? Because of what he has done. He has accomplished something. What else do we know about it? And again, this is just a smattering. I mean, it's, just, it's so far beyond this. Cleansing, washing, atoning, forgiving, redeeming, breaking, crushing, saving. All these different words that are used to describe this magnificent work of the cross, the action of God. So I want to focus on Ephesians 6 for our time this morning, and it's going to be a little strange at first because what you see in Ephesians 6, many of us know Ephesians 6, 10 through uh, I don't know what the final verse is, 15, 16, is going to enunciate the armor of God. And okay, so we know the armor of God, but where does the armor of God come from? Who is the armor of God? The armor of God is Christ. We're supposed to put off the old man and put on Christ. We're supposed to wear him as a robe of righteousness, as a garment of salvation. So it's interesting how Paul enunciates it in soldier language to show us that we have a defense in Christ Jesus, that we have been given something. What Christ gave us was himself. He gave us his body. He offered us everything that we need for life and godliness, everything we need for salvation. And so we see that enunciated in Ephesians 6. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Now it's going to go through seven different things that we are, in a sense, to take on. 
and I want to just present the notion, and it's like in a question form, where do these come from? Where did we get them from? And I'm going to link them directly back to the high priestly work of Jesus at the cross, that he is doing something on that cross to supply us with these pieces of armor so that we have what we need for life and godliness. He did something on the cross to procure it for us. So let's just walk through each one. Standing, therefore, having your loins girt about with truth. So you're supposed to have this belt of truth. Where are you going to get that belt from? And I'll I'll go into that. And having on the breastplate of righteousness. And your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith you shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And finally, seven, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, and watching thereunto with all perseverance and and supplication for all saints. So what I'd like to do is I'd like to go through each one of these, we could call them pieces of armor, but they're gifts. They're, They're things that have been gained for us because of his work as a high priest on the cross. So stand, therefore, having your loins girt about with truth. His high priestly action, what did he do? He was made naked that we might be clothed. So most of us don't recognize that what Jesus did is he gave up something. And we know in the big picture he gave up his life that we may have life. But do we realize that he was shamed so that we could be covered? So that in this action of intercessory position, he says, here, I have clothing. I want you to wear it. And in so doing, he becomes naked. He takes on our nakedness. We take on his perfect righteousness. It is an incredible statement. He takes on our sin, our curse. We take on his clothing. Okay, this is an incredible act of high priesthood. Then Pilate therefore took Jesus and scourged him. And they stripped him and parted his garments. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts, to every soldier a part, and also his coat. Now the coat was without seam, woven from the top throughout. They said, therefore, among themselves, let us not rend it, but cast lots for it. For whose it shall be, that the scripture might be fulfilled, which saith, they parted my raiment among them, and for my vesture they did cast lots. These things, therefore, the soldiers did. So we know Jesus became naked, that we might be clothed. Not just that the uh, scriptures might be fulfilled that they cast lots for his clothing, but that we might be clothed. The gospel is found in the very notion that we are to be in Christ as clothing, that we are to wear him, that we are to put off an old man and we are to put on the new man of Christ. Number two, having on the breastplate of righteousness, his high priestly action, his heart was broken that ours might become the dwelling place of God. Oh, that's beautiful. So if a physician looks at the cross and they see what is taking place and they recognize that when blood and water comes out of his side, when uh, the, the spear goes through and into his heart, what a physician says is that very likely the cause of death wasn't just the shed blood, wasn't the nail wounds, wasn't uh, any of that. It was actually the fact that his heart imploded within his chest. That he died, as it could be uh, said, of a broken heart. That the weight so crushed and imploded his very inner man. And so 
what we have is an incredible statement because this is the breastplate. And what does he do? He literally has a broken heart that our heart might become the dwelling place of God. It's an amazing, amazing thought. And because one of the number one ways that I've even described the entry into the heart of God is the fact that there's a spear wound in the side and it opens up this passageway into the heart of God. And if we would enter in by faith through his wounds, it's like a door to an ark. Then we enter into the very heart of God and we become the dwelling place of God. Our heart becomes his living chamber. It's just extraordinary. But one of the soldiers with a spear pierced his side and forthwith came there out blood and water. For these things were done that the scriptures should be fulfilled. A bone of him shall not be broken. And again, another scripture saith, they shall look on him whom they pierced. Number three, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. So his high priestly action, he washed our feet and submitted his feet unto defamation that our feet might be shod with iron and bronze. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet. For dogs have compassed me, it says in Psalm 22, a thousand years before the cross. The assembly of the wicked have enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. So Jesus is washing our feet. Meanwhile, what's he doing with his own feet? He's submitting them to be defamed. And so he's giving up his beautiful feet that we might gain beautiful feet. And his feet like unto, and his feet like unto fine bronze as if they burned in a furnace. His feet are like fine bronze. Isn't it an amazing thought to think of Christ's feet? You know, these, one, these feet that were pierced are like fine bronze. What is he clothing us with? He's clothing, clothing us with himself. So in uh, the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy, it's talking to the tribe of Asher, and it says, let him dip his foot in oil. Thy shoes shall be iron and bronze. We are given something far greater. We're given like these triumphant boots, these boots of iron and bronze that trounce the enemy, that all things are trampled under our feet. What are we given? We're, when, with our bare feet, I mean, we just try and walk around this world, and we get a little thistle underneath, and it's like, ah! But now we have such strength, such authority. Feet to the Hebrew culture are symbols of authority. When you have your foot upon something, you have conquered it. And God is giving us his feet. He is allowing his feet to be pierced and washed, and ours washed by his blood so that we could have them clothed and don the strength of iron and bronze. Number four, and take the helmet of salvation his high priestly action. His head became the brunt of cruel and savage taunt that ours might bear the wreath of Christ-endued authority. So his head took quite a beating. Not only is he hit and struck to the face multiple times by the Roman soldiers, uh, even by the high priest who clubs him in the face with his fist, but his beard is ripped out. He has spittle on his cheek they, they fashion a crown of thorns and press it upon his brow. And so the high priestly action is his head becomes the brunt of cruel and savage taunts that ours might bear the wreath of Christ-endued authority. Do you, does that make sense why we would remove our crowns and throw them at his feet? <laughs> I mean, it's like, what am I doing with a crown? 
Why should I have a crown? Lord, you are the one that is deserving. The fact that he's gone out of his way to make us kings and priests. We are the, we are the ones that are ultimately responsible for the brunt and cruel and savage taunts to his head. And yet he, in the process of being riddled with pain and mockery, is wreathing us with his kingly authority. The helmet of salvation. So Matthew 27, 29. And when they had planted a crown of thorns, they put it upon his head and a reed in his right hand, and they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit upon him and took the reed and smote him on the head. Number five. Above all, taking the shield of faith wherewith you shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. His high priestly action. His hands were bludgeoned with nails that ours might take hold of the promises of heaven. I like that statement. The other disciples therefore said unto him, We have seen the Lord. But he said unto them, Except I shall see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger in the print of the nails and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. That's good old Thomas right there. So Jesus Christ is actually going to have his hands pierced so that our hands can grab a hold of that shield of faith, so that our hands can grip the promises of God. Number six, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. His high priestly action. He was struck upon the cheek and his mouth touched with vinegar that our mouths might wear bear the word of God and wield the almighty sword of the Spirit. So his very mouth is being struck. His very mouth is being touched with vinegar so that ours can actually become the communicative device for the truth of God's very word in this generation. And out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should smite the nations. That's Revelation 19, 15. And then John 18, 22, one of the officers which stood by struck Jesus with the palm of his hand. In Matthew 27, 29, and they spit upon him and smote him on the head. In John 19, 29, and they filled a sponge with vinegar and put it to his mouth. Number seven, this is the final one. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints his high priestly action. He interceded for us in order that we might become mighty intercessors. Why did he do this? Well, yes, he did it to forgive us. Yes, he did it to redeem us. Yes, he did it to express his amazing love for us. But he also did this to set us free from a futile life. He desires to use us. His idea at creation was to create vessels that could be filled with his glory and could reveal the word of God in and through their lives. God's intention is that he would dwell inside of you and that in and through your actions, in and through your eyes, your mouth, your hands, your feet, that he would express the invisible realms that you would be the communicative device, that he chose the body of men and women to do this. So in so doing, this high priest is redeeming us with his own blood. He is forgiving us of our sins. 
He is setting things right and crushing the head of our enemy. He is destroying that which has controlled us, the flesh, the power of sin and death. So no longer are we under the thumb of a wicked dictator, but we are now able to submit to him as our master, our ruler, our Lord. And now we can be obedient instead of disobedient so that we can become rescuers. And I've given this illustration to those of you that are students in here before. But if you imagine on the left, I always stick the bad stuff on the left and then the good stuff is over. And then this is my left, okay? If you're looking at this, this is your right, but this is my left. So over here is the bad stuff and over here is the good stuff, right? So this is where we all start. We're in the Adam condition. We're in the old man and we are under a just condemnation. We need to be delivered out of this kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son. So when we are here, we are in bondage. We are enslaved to sin. We are like in a concentration camp and we're being abused. We're being tortured. And no matter how much we desire to get out, we cannot get out of this concentration camp. It is full of death, disease, and it's dire. However, when we are set free, we don't go to a, you know, the, a Bahama beach where we sip pina coladas and get fanned by natives. This isn't what we get, even though in our minds we oftentimes think that what we are being set free into is selfishness. It's like, oh, now I finally get what I want because I've been under the thumb of sin and I've had to do what the devil wants. Now I get to do what I want. No, no. No, no, your whole problem with sin is that you were trying to get what you wanted. We are actually set free now to do what he would desire. That's the big breakthrough. We are set free. So here's my mental picture for it. Jesus Christ dies, and when we look upon that cross, we are saved from our selfishness, from this concentration camp, to actually enter into boot camp where we can be built up and trained by the Holy Spirit, equipped by the Holy Spirit to do what? This is going to be the shocker of all shockers. To do what Jesus did. To go into devilish territory. To go back into the concentration camp, not to be ruled, but to set free. To break chains. You see, we are called not to excuse ourselves from this miserable world, but to actually be built strong to go into this darkened realm and shine light and to see captives set free, to seek and save that which is lost. You see, Jesus Christ was our high priest so that he could make us priests after his kind, ones that are willing to stand on behalf of weak ones, ones that are willing to step in front and take bullets that are headed towards someone, to run in front and shove people out of the way to get hit by the car that would have hit someone else. We are called to lay down our lives just as Jesus did for us. This is the essence of Christianity. Are you willing to be stripped naked that others would understand the clothing of Christ? Are you willing to be mocked and ridiculed that others would find the delight and the worshipful gaze upon our risen king? Would you be willing to take a low place and become a worm and no man that others could discover the grand redemption that is found only in and through the shed blood of Jesus? We, if we are to be his disciples, 
must deny ourselves. We must pick up our cross and follow him. Now, without the work of Jesus, we just stare at such a statement and go, well, I have no idea how I would do that. Because you are selfish at the core, but you have been set free when you look upon the cross to suddenly think and reason different. Jesus, I want you to have this life. I don't want this to be about me. I want this to be about you. Everything shifts where you actually desire to lay down your life for others. It actually sounds like the way you want to live. Isn't that a funny statement? Like when I say, hey guys, are you desirous to lay down your life for others? Like, yeah. What's getting into us? That we would desire to potentially give up our life that others could live. That's sort of a strange thing, isn't it? It's called the Spirit of God. It's the love of God that has been shed abroad in our hearts. We cherish the cross. We cherish the work of Jesus. We cherish the action of the man that fulfills all the text. And when we do cherish it, when we delight in it, we are changed by it. And we find a similar love churning inside of us. We, we find a similar kindness and gentleness and care, a similar heroism, a similar bravery, a similar courage that begins to stir within us and well up within us. Where is it? What is that? Where is it coming from? Well, it's the same spirit that was in Christ Jesus that now lives in us. And that's the beauty of the action. Jesus didn't just come to this earth to model for us God's perfection. He did something to save us. And that something that he did transforms our life and then empowers us to go and follow him. Christianity. It's a pretty amazing thing. Let's pray. Father, we stand in awe, wonder, bewilderment, befuddlement, Lord, may we see this more clearly. Lord, you have done it in such a perfect, beautiful, magnificent way. You have given up your life that we might live. Lord, I pray that you would change us as we meditate upon your action, as we see it in a greater clarity. Lord, lead us in today that we would be emissaries of this same love, the same selfless, sacrificial living that you showed us. It's in the precious name we pray. Amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder is delivered live and streamed daily weekdays at 8.15 a.m., weekends at 9.15 a.m. Join us at live.ellersley.com. We invite you to visit us at the beautiful Ellersley campus in Windsor, Colorado for a day, a week, or an entire season of gospel-centered spiritual training. Learn more at ellersley.com. Thanks for listening.